talk about miracles. And uh, maybe you experienced a miracle already this morning. Maybe it's a miracle you made it here on time because the line at Duncan was short. Uh, maybe it was a, maybe it was a miracle you got your kids out the door without another meltdown, right? Or maybe, um, it, maybe it was a miracle your car started today. Uh, maybe it was a miracle you didn't get a speeding ticket on your way here, but you kept your Bible on your lap just in case you got pulled over. I'm not going to tell you how I know that works, but it works, okay? So we're continuing our series in the, message, or in the book of Acts, and we're going to be talking, we're going to be reading through uh, the first part of Acts 19 this morning, and we're going to be talking about some of the miracles that are happening. And so we're going to read Acts 19, 1 through 22. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, that's where we're going to be. Um, if you have the YouVersion app on your phone, you're welcome to use that. We're not going to have the text on the screen because I'm going to read it directly from the Bible here. So if you don't have either of those, just feel free to, to listen to God's word this morning. So this is Acts 19, verses 1 through 22. Paul's third missionary journey. It says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul ministers in Ephesus. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of, of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. A group of Jews was traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. They tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation, saying, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a leading priest, were doing this. But one time they tried it, the evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them, and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The story of what happened spread quickly throughout all Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Afterward, Paul felt compelled by the Spirit <clears throat> to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go on to Rome. He sent his two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed a while longer in the province of Asia. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow, there is a lot going on there. You know, and, and I don't know about you, but reading this, 
it seems kind of weird, right? There's, there's some crazy stuff happening in here because maybe like you, from early on, we, we've been, I've been taught in, in some ways that, that, that we live in a solely material world where matter is all there is and matter is all that matters. In other words, what we see and experience in the physical world is all that there is. This is called empiricism or naturalism. And if you, so there, and it believes like if you can't measure it, you can't explain it, you can't verify it, you can't test it scientifically, then it, it doesn't exist and therefore can't be true. Which of course leaves no room for God or the spiritual world or the miraculous. And then we come to Acts 19 when it just flips all of that upside down. We read about healing handkerchiefs and aprons and, and an evil spirit attacking people and causing them to run away naked and a, and a multitude of people giving up practicing sorcery, some really, some really weird stuff. And these are examples of a miniature version of the broader story of Scripture which claims that the immaterial, spiritual being God is not only real but has made himself known and has invaded himself into our physical world. And if that's the reality then it not only brings the possibility, but the necessity of the miraculous and other aspects of life that are unexplainable and go beyond the capabilities of, our, of science and, and our senses alone. And so we're left with this important question. Is it possible for the, for the physical and the spiritual world or the supernatural world to both exist? What we can see and what we can't see. What, what we can explain, and also what we can't explain. What we can test, and what we can't test. And while on one hand, I can't and I won't try to convince you to believe this is true, because that's not my job to do, that's God's job to do. Uh, because here's, here's something, I, a principle that I've learned, is that you can't convince something of someone they don't want to believe is true. You know, people who don't believe in God, they have a lot of really good reasons why they don't believe in God. But what I have learned is that those reasons almost always are a smokescreen to cover up a deeper desire to not want to believe, right? Because if the Bible is true, if God is real, if Jesus is God and his words are true, well, then that has some bearing on your life. And how you live your life, you're gonna be accountable for. I will, however, present you with what the scriptures say and why I believe that both the, the physical and the spiritual, the natural and the supernatural worlds both must exist. And why I believe it's the most logical truth to stand on. And so for this to make sense, we're going to go back to Acts 19, 1 and 2. It says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul, when Paul's traveling, he encounters several believers. Normally when we talk about the word believers, we're talking about people who believe in Jesus Christ, but this is not the case. We know this because they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit, which is the third member of the Trinity, of the triune God. And the one that Jesus promised would indwell his believers and guide them and give them powers they trust and follow Jesus. In his letter to the Romans, Paul clearly says this. He says, and remember, those who do not have the spirit of Christ living among them do not belong to him at all. I mean, really, what Paul is saying here is that, hey, if you don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if, if you don't even know what that is, then, 
Maybe you got to ask yourself some tough questions. Maybe you don't really believe. Maybe, maybe you believe in your head that, yeah, Jesus was real and he died on the cross and even believe he came back to life. But do you believe in your heart in a way that it affects your life? Have you really put your trust in Jesus, which opens the room for him to allow the Holy Spirit to live in you and guide you? And so Paul goes on. He tells them what their next step is. Um, this is in verses 3 and 7. He says, then what baptism did you experience? He asked, and they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So these guys knew the Messiah was coming, because they understood both the Old Testament promise of him, and they had heard about him from John the Baptist. But Paul states, no, the Messiah has already come, and his name is Jesus. And for those who turn away from their old life which to repent, and that word repent is kind of a churchy word. It's like Christianese, right? What does repent need? Repent, simply put, is your belief in action, right? Do you believe in a way that causes your life to change? Uh, repentance is turning away Repentance is taking 180 degree, right? You're heading away from Jesus, you repent and head towards Jesus. You begin to follow him. That's what repentance is. So when you repent from your old life, which is filled with sin, and put, put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he says you'll receive eternal life, which not when you die, but it begins here on earth, here and now. And with this new life comes the Holy Spirit, which lives in us, which means God's spirit will live in you and live in these men that Paul is talking about and give him power and wisdom to live this new life of following Jesus. I, I think sometimes people who, who don't believe in Jesus sort of see following Jesus as this. They're like, okay, here's a list of things that I like to do, but I won't be able to do anymore. And here's a list of things I don't want to do, but I'm going to have to start doing them when I follow Jesus. Right? It's like white-knuckled Christianity. Like, I'm going to try really hard to follow Jesus and be holy and be sinless, Right? But that's not what it is. You see, before I started following Jesus, I did what I wanted to do. And after I started following Jesus, guess what? I still do what I want to do. But what I want to do has changed because God, through his Holy Spirit, has changed my heart. And so have your desires, have your motivations changed? And let me go on because it says that these guys spoke in tongues. And I just want to briefly address this to clear up any confusion. Uh, I don't know about you, um, but I have heard people speak in tongues like way long ago when I was a kid, and I was like, it just freaked me out, right? I had no idea what was going on. But the Greek word tongues just means languages, and it's, it's a special language that is a gift from God that one may use to speak to God or other believers. And we do see it throughout the book of Acts and in other places in the New Testament as an indicator of someone who has received the Holy Spirit, but it's not a universal pattern. In, in, in Acts or, or in other places where we see people follow Jesus. What we do see as a pattern, what we do see repeated over and over again is to put your faith in Jesus and be baptized. And so if you're like me and you believe in Jesus, but you've never spoken in tongues, just know that you're not some kind of inferior believer. And if you do have the gift of tongues, I want you to know that you're not some type of superior, like you're not a black belt Christian, all right? But you have been given a special gift to use in accordance with what what the New Testament says, what scriptures say. And so again, what's not critical is do you speak in tongues? What's critical is are you all in with Jesus? 
I was reading in John 6 this morning, and Jesus said some really crazy stuff to the crowds. Right? These people were following him. They had just experienced him uh, multiplying the bread and the fish, and so they're like, this is awesome, right? We're never going to go hungry again. And then Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy of being my disciple. So you're like, all right, Jesus, you calling for a cult of cannibals to follow you? No, that's not what Jesus was saying. But what Jesus was saying is that unless I'm as important to you as food and drink, you don't get it. And the people who were just sort of in it for the miracles, for the bread and the fish, they started to desert themselves, or they started to desert Jesus because they weren't ready for that level of commitment. But what's critical of following Jesus is are you willing to go all in? Because I said it last week, Jesus never gave us the option of being marginally important in our lives. He never gave us the option of being an addition. It's placing your entire faith and confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer. And when you do this, when you're born again or saved, you give your life to Jesus, you become a true Christian, it says that we are given the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, we're able to see things in a brand new way. When, when God saved me, it was almost like my eyes were open to the destruction that my life had caused. Because before that, I thought I was like a pretty good guy, right? But then God helped me to see what my, the damage that my life was doing to myself and others. And, and, and I was able to see things I couldn't see. And also, with this came new possibilities that we otherwise might have thought impossible. Not only is it possible through, with the Holy Spirit to love unconditionally, to live with purpose, and to find rest and satisfaction for our souls... But for the very first time, I could see that, wow, the physical world and the spiritual world can actually both exist together. And with that, the possibility, and I would say the necessity, of the miraculous. This is why it should not be a surprise that when we read about people saying yes to following Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we see the physical and the spiritual world come together in a real way. For existence, 9 uh, 19, 11, and 12, it says that God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles. When his handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people, they were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. You know, as Paul was going about his journey, he gave him the incredible power to perform miracles to the point was all he had to do was put his handkerchief or an apron on someone. They were healed of all sorts of physical and spiritual ailments, Right? And now, I just want you to know that this, is, this could easily get wrapped up in superstition, right? That you just think, oh, all I got to do is, you know, find that apron, find that napkin or, or that oil or whatever it is. This is not a formula. This was a, a special occasion. This, this was God intervening in a, in a special way. It is not like, hey, if you get this apron, you know, blessed by, a, by somebody or whatever, like, that's going to work. Like, you know, I wear an apron when I cook, and like the only miracle that happens is my smoke alarm doesn't go off, right? Like, th this is not a formula. And so if somebody tries to convince you that, hey, all you've got to do is get this bracelet, this oil, this thing, whatever, and you can be healed, like, just turn the TV off. It goes on in Acts 19, 17 through 19. It says, the story of what happened spread quickly all through Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who'd been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and burned them at a public bonfire. The value of the books was several million dollars. 
So right before this, we read about a man who's indwelled with an evil spirit and who attacks other people. Remember the part about people running away naked and battered, right? Well, after that happened, people started to become fearful, and they believed that this was really true. And as a result, people began to turn away from their, from their sinful ways and embrace this new life that they had in Jesus' death and resurrection. And with this new life, some people began giving up sorcery, which they now realized was evil. And they didn't just give the books away. They didn't just send them to the goodwill. Like, no, they started burning them. And the value was in the millions, right? They burned them, destroying them once and for all. And it's a, there's this painting. Um, in the, it's hanging in the Louvre by Eustace Lesseur. Yeah, I looked it up. All right, and what I love about this painting is this is Paul's sermon in Ephesus, and you see the people who were practicing sorcery burning their books, and it captures the heart of following Jesus. Again, not adding Jesus onto our lives, but being willing to walk away from anything to follow him. I think think the disciple Matthew is a perfect example of this because Matthew was a, Jewish, was a Jewish man, but he was also a tax collector, right? Now, none of you probably like people that work for the IRS. I love you if you work for the IRS, all right? You do a great job. But this was different because Rome had invaded Jerusalem, and now they were the ruling power. They were ruling over the Jews, and Matthew, who was a Jew, goes to work for the Romans, collecting his own people's taxes and taking some off the top for himself, right? This was a really lucrative position. Right, he had like a super nice house with a water slide, a Lamborghini Camel. He had everything, right? This was a great job. But he was robbing his own people. It was immoral. Jesus comes along and asks Matthew to follow him. And Matthew doesn't say, absolutely, I'm going to start reading the scriptures more. I'm going to go to make sure I get to the synagogue on Sunday. I'm going to join a small group, do a daily devotion. No, Matthew walked away from his six-figure, maybe seven-figure job, left it all behind to follow Jesus, didn't even know where he was going. And so my question to you is this, are you willing to walk away? I mean, whatever it is in your life that is taking the place of God, are you willing to walk away from it to follow Jesus? Not just add Jesus on. Because Jesus is not an add-on. Like he said, he's everything or he's nothing to you. Are you willing? We go on. And Luke says this about this scene. He says, so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. The effect is seen in these people who are burning these books. You know, before this, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus or God or anything like that. They were skeptical at best. Sure, they may have been spiritual. I mean, they were practicing sorcery. But obviously, they didn't believe in it too much because they left it pretty quickly when they when they heard about Jesus, the effect of the, of the spread of the message of Jesus was powerful. And to me, I think like this sort of represents a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus, right? You may not, I mean, they may not believe in witches or magic or sorcery or anything like that, but maybe they believe in a higher power. Maybe you believe in some universal energy or life force, or you might not believe in anything spiritual or supernatural. When it comes to healing or miracles or things that that seem you know, out of the ordinary, you might label yourself as a naturalist or, or an empiricist or a skeptic, and you just think that these things are coincidences, right? Or we just haven't figured out a way to explain them yet. Well, C.S. Lewis, who many of you might have heard of, it was a former devout atheist and naturalist. But eventually, the message of Jesus had a powerful effect on his life. And along the way, 
Lewis's views on naturalism gave way to supernaturalism, that both the natural and the supernatural exist. Both the explainable and the unexplainable exist. He shares about an observation that he came to realize in his book, Miracles. He says, if naturalism is to be accepted, then we have a right to demand that every single thing should be such that we see, in general, how it could be explained in terms of the total system. If any one thing exists which is of such a kind that we see in advance the impossibility of ever giving it that kind of explanation, then naturalism would be in ruins. In other words, if something happens that we can't explain or, def- or defy science, reasoning, or goes beyond our five senses, then the whole idea of matter is all that there is, matter is all that matters, goes out the window, and with it the possibility of something more. Lewis was, what I appreciate about him is he was, he was honest with himself when he came to that conclusion. How about you? You know, are you, are you really willing to be honest with yourself? Even if you are the most devout, devoted, naturalist, atheist, or skeptic, <clears throat> could it be possible that both science and a savior could exist together? Has there ever been a time in your life that something just goes beyond coincidental or that baffled you? Maybe that maybe the, the only label that is rational, even if it seems irrational, is the word miracle. Because I think that there are two things, among many things, that discount miracles. But two of the main things that stick out, I think, are this. One is to try to rationalize them as coincidences, Right? to try to explain them away. No matter how incredible something might seem, if you've already believed that miracles can't be true, then you will always find some type of rescuing device to save your worldview, right? Quick story, I was in a sledding accident. Okay, Hogan's Hill, right? I was going down Hogan's Hill, and yeah, don't laugh. There's a trail along the side. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna go this, because like, I'm an adult. I wasn't even with my kids. It was just me and Marlena were out sledding one night. And uh, I hit a tree at the bottom, right? And, uh, I mean, it hurt so bad I could barely walk up the hill. And then I fell back down the hill. And then I had to drive myself to the hospital because I had a stick shift car and Marlena couldn't really drive it that well. So, anyway, we get to the hospital and I ended up spending the night in the hospital. As they said, I might have some internal bleeding or whatever. And then the next day, the doctor came in and he said, hey, I was looking at your scans and it looks like you have a mass above one of your adrenal glands. And the word mass is short for massive panic attack right? That is the last thing that you want to hear, right? And so now I'm like, oh, I have this mass. What could it be? Could it be benign? Could it be malignant? All of these things, you know, and weeks go on and I'm waiting to hear to get some more testing and I'm starting to have pain and all of these things, right? And I'm like thinking through my eulogy, like what do I want my kids to say at my funeral? Like this is the end. And so I get more scans done and my doctor, who is also a believer, he calls me one day. I remember I was sitting in my office in Sandusky and he goes, Joe, you serve an incredible God. I was like, why? He goes, there is nothing on your scans now. Easy to write off as a coincidence, right? Hey, it went away. You know, it was, it was not a mess, right? There was, but I'm not going to insult my doctor's intelligence. And sure, you could, you could argue those things away, but, but it was a small thing that you can either write off as a coincidence or you could see that God was involved. Because if you, don't, if, you, if you don't believe and you won't believe, there's nothing we can do to convince you otherwise. You know, if I tell you right now, hey, I don't believe in Australia. Sorry, Bluey fans, all right? But Australia doesn't exist. 
how could you convince me that Australia is real? Right? You could be like, well, I have a friend from Australia. I'd be like, no, that's just their own. What's true for them isn't true for me. Right? Or you could say, well, we have pictures. And I'd be like, okay, they're fabricated. Right? Or you could say, we'll fly you there and you fly me to Australia. I'd be like, this isn't Australia. Nothing you could possibly do could convince me, right, if I've already decided in my heart that I'm not going to believe in something. However, even though you can't prove to me that Australia exists, the evidence is so overwhelming that Australia is really there that I would have to be willingly in denial of what is obviously true. Because the most rational explanation is that Australia does actually exist. So are you denying the possibility of the supernatural and with it miracles, or are you allowing the most rational answer to emerge, even if by naturalistic standards it's irrational? That's one thing that can discount miracles. The other one is that sometimes they're buried in garbage. And what I mean to you is this. Some of the greatest miracles that I have seen have come out of terrible situations. And maybe, just maybe, the one who is behind the miracle is doing what he's doing so that he can make himself known to you. I started this podcast last year where I interview regular people who've done extraordinary things or have experienced extraordinary things. I've got to interview some really cool people, and one of them was John Chime, and one of them was John Soisson. You may know them. They're local guys. And it was incredible what, what I heard from them. So John Soisson, um, I've been in a Bible study with, and uh, you know he was the fire chief for a long time. He helped build the new fire station. And he was a you know, strong guy, smart, sharp, driven, at, at, you know, in the prime of his life. And whenever we would talk about the Bible, I always got this sense that he always believed that he had to earn God's favor, right? And then a couple summers ago, he woke up and he couldn't get out of bed because he had experienced a massive stroke, that it was a miracle that it didn't take his life. But what happened was God slammed the brakes on his life, and John went from being at the prime of his life to being a prisoner in his own body. And in that, he started listening to some sermons. And one of those guys he started listening to was, was Dr. Tim Keller. And through that time, because he had to slow down and really think, he realized that salvation was through grace and grace alone in faith in Christ, and he was saved. The other one was John Chime. John is a counselor here in Norwalk, and uh, he, was, he was in the middle of seminary and through a crazy turn of events, ended up spending three years in prison. Walked away from his faith. He said, God can't be real if this is happening to me. I was in seminary. But through that, prison experience, he met a guy named Booker who relentlessly, relentlessly invited him over and over to go to church. And John finally went and realized that Jesus was real and put his faith in him. And when he came out of prison, finished his seminary career. They have incredible stories, incredible miracles that were born out of garbage, right? Which is like the greatest miracle, which is the cross. You know, you and I are living in a physical world. We we are matter, but matter is not all that there is. If it is, then there's no meaning to any of this, really. There's no purpose. There's no ultimate reality, no God, no life after death. I mean, we might as well shut the doors of this place and make it a trampoline park. If the physical world is all that there is, then Jesus wasn't God, the cross didn't mean anything, the resurrection didn't happen, and your faith is a joke. But there's more to this world than what we can see. You know, 
from the universal longings that we all have for things like love and meaning to the unexplainable miracles that defy the law of nature, these point to a spiritual world inhabited by a creator who wants a relationship with us. So the next time that you experience something that you can't explain, would you take it as a sign that, the, that this loving creator has been and will continue to pursue you so that you can discover the logic and beauty of what happens when the physical and spiritual worlds come together. Because the greatest miracle is salvation. A miracle buried in the garbage of the death of Christ on the cross. What looked like the ultimate defeat of good and the ultimate triumph of evil was Jesus displaying his greatest victory over death. Nothing that the physical world could ever explain. And if you try to explain it away, if you try to discount it, then you're gonna miss it. You'll miss the miracle that a holy and perfect God, the creator of the universe, looked at you and he looked at me, steeped in all of our sin and still loved us. Loved us at the cost of his life so that we could be saved, redeemed, freed, forgiven, blessed. So we could be loved, given grace, given power, given wisdom, given community, given a family, given the Holy Spirit, given life and life abundantly. And if you've never grabbed a hold of that miracle, don't let it go by another day. Make today that day. You know, and if that's something you want to learn more about or you want to talk about or you want to pray with somebody, I would love to talk to you after the service. Pastor Charles is here. We would love to answer any questions that you have so that you can experience that miracle for yourself. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the miracles that you have allowed us to experience in our life. And God, would our hearts not be so hardened that we try to explain them away as coincidence? And God, thank you for the greatest miracle of all time, the cross. God, that you would give your life for broken, sinful people like us is completely unexplainable. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.